Testament as we prepare uh, to hear from the Lord uh, from Romans uh, chapter 11. Uh, I'm only going to, when you begin to turn there, I'm only going to read from uh, verses uh, 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 33 to 36, which is the very end. I know we have some other verses that are there, but I I debated how much to read to you. I'm going to do the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you because the the question that we'll, we'll have to wrestle with is, why does Paul end this section this way? So I'm going to read again from Romans chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 33. This is what the word of the Lord says to us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And so the question that I started with, I do before the house, and that's simply, why would he end this way with such heightened praise, talking about the knowledge and the wisdom and the glory of God? Is it the end that he's, after he's been reflecting on all 11 chapters? That is, Paul has been laying out the gospel to people he has never met. And, and he's now looking back on all the things that he has written about. And, and he, the only response he can give is, to glorify God, to praise God, and to give him thanks? Or is it just the end of chapters 9, 10, and 11, which has really been our summer here as we've been reflecting, Paul has been dealing with this idea of God's plan of salvation to the Jews. And so, yes, we have this big, beautiful, uh, sweeping gospel, but it's being specifically applied to the Jews, and as a result, he gives praise. I don't think it has to be either or. I think it can be both and. That is, Paul is reflecting on the totality of the gospel and as it is applied to the Jews and all of that together, Paul's caught up in a moment of praise. And that's what we have before us. Let's look at in this chapter what leads him to that kind of praise by asking, what does it all mean? What is the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God? What are those things? To help us answer that question, I want to remind us of a parable that Jesus told that's recorded for us in Luke 15. Often that parable is called the parable of the prodigal son. Really, it's a parable about two sons, not one. In fact, that's how it begins in verse 11 of of Luke 15. There was a man with two sons. It describes for us literally uh, two ways uh, to be lost not one. You see, often we talk about how the prodigal son, the younger son, he gets tired of living on the farm. He comes to dad and he says, dad, I've had enough of this lifestyle. I'm, I'm dirty all the time. I, I don't get enough of baths. I don't get enough to see of my friends and I don't ever get enough in my allowance. Can I just have my portion of the inheritance, which is about 40%. The elder brother gets about 60% in the ancient world and the younger brother gets about 40% if there's only two children. And so he's asked for that. And, and typically, if anybody asked that in the ancient world, they would have just 
either disowned the son and left him with nothing or he would just have killed him because it's an affront. It's basically saying to the father, I don't love you. I want you what you can give me. Remember that sometimes kids, that sometimes when we only want what our parents can give, one conclusion a parent can take from that is that you want what I have, not who I am. And so that's the younger brother and he goes off and he begins uh, spending that money and that's where the the idea behind uh, prodigal came from that it's a reckless spending that till he has nothing left and and he goes back to the profession that he knows which is to farm and the part that he has is to feed the pigs and and even there the the trough looks good to him and so he begins to eat it and then he comes to his senses and says I can do better I can go home and be a servant because my dad's servants eat better than I do. And so he goes back uh, to his father and repents and his father uh, loves on him, welcomes him back, gives him a, a ring and a robe and, and, he, and some shoes and he throws him a party. And meanwhile, the elder brother, which is the other part of the story, is all upset that not just that the boys come home and he's been welcomed, but simply he's been treated as if nothing had happened. In fact, almost the opposite. He's getting a party now, and Dad has never thrown me a party. In fact, that's the discussion that they have right outside the party. Dad comes out and says, why aren't you coming in? My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was blind, and now he sees. Why don't you come in? And he says, Dad, you've never done anything like this for me, and, I, and what have I done? I've done everything you wanted me to do. You see, there, there literally are two ways to be lost. One, we typically call open rebellion that I am a, an end for myself. I, I, I reject the Father and the Father's love because I want to find love in my own way. I want to find, find my own glory. The other one is to stay to get your glory. You still don't want the Father's love. You want what the Father has and, the, and your means to get that is simply to do everything. And so it, often in, in churches and in communities, you have both of these brothers. Those that are openly in, in rebellion and it's obvious that they're trying so hard to be their own man or be their own woman. And the other is very faithful, but ultimately trying to get the same thing, just two different methods. Henry Nguyen, who in his book called The Return of the Prodigal said, not only does the younger son who left home get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. On the exterior, this is the second son, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do, but on the interior, he wandered far from his father as well. It's not a parable about just two brothers. That's why I want to apply it to Romans 9, 10, and 11 here. It's, it's really about two peoples or two groups of people who have each rejected God and are alienated from their father's heart. Jews, Gentiles. Both have rejected the father, one group by running and the other by staying. One by being obedient and one by being disobedient. And Romans speaks to both sons, both brothers, both groups. Paul begins our 
chapter 11 with a question. I didn't read it, but way back up in verse one, he says, I asked then, Paul's way of saying, I got a question. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the chapter answering this question. Has God rejected his people? We can understand Paul asking this kind of a question. The long-awaited Messiah has come to Israel. He was born there. He spent his entire ministry there. And for the most part, the Jews have rejected him as the savior of the world. And what has made it worse for the Jews is that in droves, Gentiles have turned to God and believed in Jesus. Is this the reason they don't believe? Not because of their sin, but because God has rejected them? That's Paul's question. He's not blaming the Jews yet. He's just saying, is it because God has rejected them? The short answer he gives in in verse one is by no means. And then he gives two pieces of proof. He's exhibit A, Paul. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm a believer. Obviously, God hasn't rejected all Jews because I am a Jew. In fact, I'm of one of the two tribes that were left behind after the exile that were still there. If you want to talk about who's who in the world, the verse, the group you would start with is the Benjamites, the faithful ones, the ones who remained. And Paul says, I believe. I'm evidence that God has not rejected the Jews. The other piece of evidence he gives in verses two through four, he says, do you remember Elijah? Elijah uh, had just defeated Baal's prophets, showed them up, did all the things that they couldn't do. And, And Sheba gets all upset about it. Jezebel, she gets all upset. And so she gets an army to, to vindicate uh, uh, the, the gods of her land. And so they, she begins to pursue Elijah and tries to get him uh, 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 killed. And, and so eventually Elijah's running around and he says, God, is there anyone left in Israel who is, remains faithful to God? Is there anybody that still believes? Kind of the same question Paul's asking in chapter 11. You remember what God's answer is? Is I have 7,000, a remnant left in Israel that are still follows me. And Paul's answer to that is, if you remember that, let me bring it into the present, at least his present, which is the first century. So too at the verse five, so too at the present time, there is a remnant by grace. This remnant exists because of God's lavish grace, not because they worked up some faith, not not because they finally saw, simply because God was gracious to some. Grace is grace precisely because it is not deserved. Verse six, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And yet Paul knows most of his people still do not believe. This is not a mere theological conundrum from Paul. This is a personal, constant sorrow for him to see that the Savior has come into the world. The one that had been promised back in Genesis 3.15 has finally arrived and his own people have rejected the Savior of the world. 
And so chapter 11 is such a source of comfort to Paul. And he wants to share with the Jews in Rome the comfort, not just the situation, not just the question, not just an answer, but the answer. God has not abandoned the Jews. He will save all of Israel. But all of Israel will be made up of Gentiles and Jews, not just Jews. You see, the hope for a resurrection only matters to those who know they're standing in ashes. If you're standing on the mountaintop and everything has gone well, you don't need a resurrection. In fact, you don't even want one. But it is only when you're in the ashes. Paul's question is simply, why, why don't more believe? Why is it only just small remnant? Well, it is because God is letting sin take its full effect. What does that mean? Verses 11 and 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, which literally it means to stumble over something. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? The younger brother is coming home all around Paul, even to this day. Coming home to the Father, even after we have gone and looked at wisdom of this world, the philosophies of this world, our own uh, uh, ambitions and desires. And now we've come to our senses, all by grace, not like we got a corner on wisdom and, and we've got it simply because of grace. But the elder brother has not yet come into the party, at least not whole, maybe in part. What keeps him out? We see that here, jealousy. A brother's jealousy. That's the other effect of the Gentiles coming in. Though we don't know if the elder brother ever went into the party, we do know what's going to happen to the end of the story for the Jews. That is, Jews could not see Jesus as the Messiah. We know that. We know that they could not see that the Gentiles were part of the people. That's why they rejected them. And they rejected Christianity because the Gentiles were the primary people in Christianity in the early days. But the Gentiles were turning to God, and so the Jews are jealous. It is almost like uh, uh, Javert in Les Mis. As he, he stands there on the precipices of thinking about committing suicide because he can't rectify how the bad has become good. How in the world can a Gentile, a, a dirty, miserable outcast of the world, be allowed to come into the people of God? We know this is not the end of the story because we have chapter 11. This jealousy somehow opens a door for Gentiles and Jews to be saved. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life 
from the dead. God even uses, this is the principle that I hope that we can walk away, and I think it is tremendously encouraging, is that God sometimes uses our sometimes stumbling life not to make us fall, but to bring us home. Paul is the one who is linking the jealousy to the stumbling. Paul's the one who says that Jesus even used the sin of the elder brother to bring in the younger brother. And then that same jealousy in order to bring in the Jews. Our sometimes stumbling life not only gives need for grace, the stumbling is grace too. We don't look at it that way. You ever think about that? When, when we stumble, we want to get through the stumble as quick as we can back to something solid where everybody thinks good of us. That's what we want. That's what we're longing for. When, when reality is that often we don't learn our lesson unless stumbling lasts for a while. Until we recognize it is also a grace of God, not only to get out of the stumbling, but also while we're in the stumbling. Because it is the stumbling that makes us look up rather than in. And sometimes the more profound the stumbling, the more profound the response, which is why I think chapter 11 ends the way it does. Paul has been laying out God's plan to save all of his people, the true Israel. And he uses two incredible illustrations here. In verse 16, he begins to talk about the sacrificial system because he talks about first fruits. The way it worked is, is that if we were an agrarian society, which is what this was written to, they would understand about the idea if you were a, if you were a, a farmer or maybe you raised animals, they don't all birth at the same time, nor do all your crops come in at the same time. There's a leading of the crops. One of the ways you know that, it, I grew up in uh, Pravel, Alabama, which was a corn area of Alabama, and so you could literally see the corn ripen, not all at once, but in waves. And so in the ancient world, the first fruits there in, in Israel, they would, they would pick it and they would give that as a representative of the whole. That is a down payment that just as this corn is ripe, the rest of it will be ripe too. Just as this animal was born, the rest of the animals will be born. And God owns it all. And so what Paul is saying is that the the remnant that we have today that believe are the first fruits of all who will come to Jesus. Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles of Israel. Then he says, let me give you another illustration to help you understand that. And this is the harder one because very few of us grow olive trees. And we're not in a part of the world that has a lot of olive trees. But in the ancient world, olives were very important to the culture, particularly olive oil. And so they have these olive trees. And, and, and the way it worked was is as you planted, uh, some of it culted, cultivated and it produced lots of olives. But sometimes those seed fell outside of the area in which they were growing, didn't get the attention. It grew wild and produced no fruit or very little. 
And so what they would do is rather than just tear those up out of the ground, which is very hard to do of an olive tree, they would take the good branches and they would graft them in to the bad trees because there was nothing wrong with the tree. That is, it, it, it was able to take the good nutrients out of the soil and was able to bring it up through its root system and deliver it to its branches. That's not a problem. The problem was that the wild branches were not producing. And so they would take good branches and that's the way it was. But that's not the illustration that is here, is it? The illustration here is to take bad branches that were producing no fruit and graft them into the good trees. It's the opposite. Why is it that way? It's because God's plan is unnatural. It's unexpected. So no one can boast that it is all a grace of God, whether you are a good branch, which is representing the Jews, or the wild branch, which is representing the Gentiles. But it's also to show us this, that the root system by which the grace of God comes, comes through the root, which is the Jews, not the Gentiles. That's this whole rebuke about, hey, before you begin to get all boastful Gentiles, recognize who you are in this illustration. You're the wild one that was producing no fruit and I grafted you in by grace. And if I want to, I'm going to find more Jews out there and I'm going to regraft them in. This is the extraordinary miracle of grace, and it's the extraordinary grace of God's plan to save Israel, all of it, Jews and Gentiles, elder brothers, younger brothers. This is the mystery, he says in verse 25, that is now being revealed. This idea of mystery is not like a a novel where there's a treasure that has to be discovered. This kind of mystery is a secret that is being told from long ago. The promised people of God, the true Israel will be made up of Jews and Gentiles, a single people of God. The Jews should have known that. What was the promise to Abraham? That he would be a blessing to the nations. And and, and because it's in English, we miss it. The, The idea behind the nations is the peoples of the world, which includes the Gentiles, which is what's behind the idea of Gentiles. They are the nations. Way back in Genesis 12, of 15, 17, and 22, there was already the promise that Israel, the true Israel, will not be just the physical people, but those by grace that God has created as his people. And he's going to call them what? We see it in verse 25, brothers, Adelphi. These Gentiles and Jews Wild branches and healthy branches are all going to come and form together this one new people. They will be family. And God will be the father, an extravagant father. God's plan to save both sons. Tim Keller says in his book on the prodigal God, which you can get at hopefully still at the Welcome Center. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure. Another way to understand it is extravagance, who is nothing if not prodigal toward us, his children. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. God is the prodigal father, not just the prodigal sons, because he lavishes his extravagant grace. He welcomes 
this lost son who refused to be after his father's hope, heart. And his father refused to reckon or count his sin against him and demand a repayment. This response offended the elder brother, which is why the elder brother didn't come into the party and why the Jews don't come in to the church. And most likely the whole community rejected that parable. He gives him his robe, his shoes, his ring to the son who once rejected him and wasted 40% of his wealth. And the father's also being extravagantly gracious to the elder brother too. He turns to the elder brother at the party when he refuses to go in. And, he, and his answer of why he won't go in is simply, you didn't throw me a party like this. You know what his father says to him in Luke 15? He says, but all that I have is yours. You know who he's saying that to? He's saying it to the one who won't come into his party. The ungrateful son. So whether you're an elder brother in in this room or you're you're a younger brother, you're all being welcomed into the father's home, into the father's party. You're being welcomed in, not not left out because of your obedience or your disobedience. It's all a work of grace. No one can boast because we have an extravagant father who doesn't count our sins against us, but sent his own son into this world to die for them in our place so that he can look at you instead of calling you his enemy, he calls you his son. And ladies, don't, don't look at that as an insult. Look at that as an elevation in the ancient world. To call you a son is to pay you a compliment and to give you access that you could have never gotten in the ancient world. People often will say that Christianity is misogynistic, and it's not. People are. But Christianity at the time was on the leading edge by calling women sons. What we inherit as men, women inherit too. Co-heirs in Christ. Paul's concluding words. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What is, are those things? God's extravagant grace to save all of Israel, Jews and Gentiles. The only response that... Paul could have of giving this good news is to break out in praise. When we gather together and worship, that's what we're doing. We're rehearsing the gospel and then we're praising God for it. That's worship. It can be a lot of things, but it can't be less than that. What God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful gospel that all of Israel will be saved. And sometimes through our stumbling life, that's how you save us. Because it's the only way we'll turn back and pay attention and look up at our extravagant, gracious Father who welcomes us home into the party that he is throwing as the host. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.